read in your devotions, and the only thing you've gotten out of this chapter is the 14th verse where Isaiah prophesies of a woman giving birth, and she is a virgin, the virgin birth. <clears throat> and that's, of course, um, not ideal. We want to understand more of the chapter, more of what God has to say. A lot of history here. Now, the difference between Bible history and world history or any other type of history is that God's history in the Scripture singles you and I out, singles people out. It puts a demand on us. It asks us to line up with what's being said, with what's being taught. So, hopefully, with that in mind, you'll not be bored when I start getting into the historical elements of this chapter because that's what it's going to take to understand just what is taking place. And I'll try to make it interesting. Um, the title is A Determined Unbeliever. That would be King Ahaz. He was just adamant about resisting God, <clears throat> and likely he did to his death. So, before I get to the first verse, I want to talk about him a little bit. Where we are in Isaiah is the seventh chapter which, as we studied last session, follows Isaiah's second or latter call to ministry. We are after the death of Uzziah, during the reign of Jotham, Uzziah's son, this king Ahaz, his father. Isaiah is silent. After the death of Uzziah, when Jotham comes to power, becomes king, we don't hear from Isaiah. That's a good thing. Uh, the king, uh, I, Jotham, well, we read about him in Second Chronicles 27, and he did what was right in the sight of Yahweh, according to all that his father Uzziah had done, although he did not enter the temple of Yahweh. But still, the people acted corruptly. Well, this is important to understand what's going on. Uzziah, the good king, he got a little carried away with his authority and tried to offer incense in the temple. And, of course, he was smitten with leprosy by God, and the priest got him out of there. And he was still a good king. His son Jotham comes to power, and he is a good king, and he doesn't try to do the same thing. But that little that footnote on the second verse of Second Chronicles 27, but still the people acted corruptly. That has everything to do with all the suffering that's going to go on in this chapter. Historically. Well, then Ahaz, the son of Jotham, becomes king. And there's this surge of evil in the land. Open defiance against Yahweh. Second Chronicles 28 tells us, For Yahweh brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel. For he had encouraged moral decline in Judah and had been continually unfaithful to Yahweh. How would you like that on your spiritual resume, that you brought the people low? Again, for Yahweh, for Second Chronicles 28, verse 19, for Yahweh brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel. So when Jotham dies, Ahaz comes to power, God has to activate again his messenger, Isaiah, and that's what, what this chapter is. It's Isaiah coming to this wicked king, and he's going to begin 
to give him every opportunity to be a good king and not bring the people low. Because again, one man can bring the nation down. Well, the nation has to cooperate. Thus that saying, but still the people acted corruptly. That means they acted corruptly against their God. Defying God is not free. Comes with a price. You may not pay up right away, ergo Ecclesiastes 8.11, but you will pay and it will cost more than you can afford. Nothing in Scripture is about a single person. Nothing in Scripture, dare I say, is even just about God. Otherwise, why would God share it with us? It, is, it always has others in mind. If it were just about God, then he wouldn't have to say anything. But he speaks to us. He's revealing things to us. And when we come to our scripture, it is not just about one person. It includes the reader. It includes the participants. And it is a wonderful thing about the scripture. It is a statement from, there is a statement from God in that. Well, the history of Israel and Judah was radically affected at the time that Ahaz comes to the throne. Assyria gets a new king, Tiglath-Pileser. And until now, when Assyria made raids into Israel or other countries in that area, it was really just to get loot, to take slaves and get what they wanted and then leave. But when this man comes to power, he has a foreign policy that changes everything, and it's going to affect the Jewish people directly. And this foreign policy that he inaugurates is the massive deportation and repopulation of the people that he conquers. In other words, he sort of goes to Beijing in China and conquers it and takes all those people that live in Beijing and move them to uh, Kabul and Afghanistan, where he conquered them too, and then takes the people from Hanoi and Vietnam and shuffles them around, and he's just mixing all these people up. This keeps them off balance. They can't uh, get together and resist him. And this is what he's going to do. He's going to come, and he's going to conquer the northern kingdom. He's going to take all the people out. It's going to take him about 65 years to completely do it. We know that from... When we get to verse 8, especially the uh, upper class people, he would be sure to get them out of the land and put them in a place where they would benefit his domain, but they would not be able to rally against his kingdom. And it, it was a very successful policy. And this is going to test the faith of the prophet Isaiah, who up until this time has enjoyed Two godly kings, Uzziah and his son Jotham, and Uzziah is just pre preaching to the, to the wicked. But now he's going to have an army at his doorstep. Wouldn't care anything about him. In fact, at this time in history, unlike in the days of Jonah, the Assyrians have become a very vicious people. I am skinning people alive and hanging their skins over the walls and just, so, just psychological warfare. Their, their military was... Very competent. They, they had you know, raider battalions. They're just bad people to have to fight against. And so we'll come back to some of that in verse 1 now. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezen, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, 
went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told to the house of David, verse 2, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. Now, Isaiah's writing this, he gets a little flowery there to tell us, you know, they were panic-stricken. And there's this image of the, you know, the trees swaying, that's their hearts. Well, Ahaz becomes king at 25 years old, 25 years of age. And he reigns for 16 years. That would be four American presidential terms. We know two can really be tough. So two terms, that is. But he is double that. And, you, you know, his grandfather, as I mentioned, Uzziah and his father were godly kings. Ahaz would have none of that. He is going to show God who, bought, who the boss is, who he thinks. That's his approach. And, I, and God does everything to reach him by sending Isaiah to him. He's going to do everything he can. He's determined to be content with rejecting Yahweh. You can't say he's godless because he has his fake gods, but he, of course, that would just make him a, an idolater and a heathen. Anyway, uh, it is the year 734 B.C., about 734 years before the birth of Christ. And that's important to the story, to understand what's going on. Because the northern kingdom is still there. The, the north, you know, Israel was divided in, after Solomon's death into Judah and Israel. Israel, also known as Ephraim or Jacob, but it's the northern kingdom. So you've got those four descriptions, northern kingdom, Israel, Jacob, Ephraim. Ephraim is what she is, uh, the northern kingdom is referred to here. And uh, they're still in place, but in 12 years. Twelve years from the time that uh, this, is, this Isaiah confronts this king Ahaz, Samaria will fall, the, the capital city of the northern kingdom. And 65 years from when he engages this king in just a few verses, uh, the judgment will be complete. The northern kingdom will be completely uh, relocated. The people will be assimilated into pagan lands, and that will be it. However... Of the tribes that lived in that area, uh, many of them became refugees and moved to the south. So the tribes are preserved. Uh, the Jews will be able to identify their tribal uh, distinction up until Rome destroys Jerusalem in 70 AD and all that went on uh, with that. And the, the, the records were lost. And so the Jews cannot tell you to this day what tribe they are from. That will be resolved uh, in, in, as we get closer to the last of the last days, closer to the rapture. Anyway, um, uh, the prophet comes along and he's telling them that he's going to tell them you've got 65 years, but they won't believe him. The unrighteous will not, will not receive it. And so the consequences will fall on them. So the Assyrian Empire is afoot. They are, they are going to take the start right away. Right away, they are going to start attacking the northern kingdom, and uh, there's a reason why. They're going to start attacking Syria also, which will fall in two years. So to defend themselves, the northern kingdom and Syria join forces. Judah does not want to go with them. Judah instead, with under King Ahaz, instead of going to God, Judah goes to the Assyrians. He says, well, look, 
We three kings can't beat Assyria, so I'm going to side with Assyria. Makes perfect sense. Well, what made more sense is if he would just side with God. He wouldn't have to worry about any alliance other than that with Yahweh. But, of course, he did not believe it. And so Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel were determined to force him to join them. How were they going to do that? Well, they were going to attack. They were going to kill him. And they had a king, Tabel, ready to put in his place. We'll get that in verse 6, where they named this replacement king that they intend to put in the place of Ahaz. But it won't succeed. It won't succeed because Ahaz still is the line of David. And that line is not going to be destroyed. God is going to protect the line of David for Messiah to come 700 years later. And God's word will not fail. The grass may wither, the flowers fade, but his word stands forever. So Syria and Israel, uh, the reason why the heart of Ahaz is swaying, because the northern kingdom has already come against Jerusalem, and now Syria is going to join them, and he knows that they're not going to be able to withstand them. And that's why he's panic-stricken, and so are the people with him. Now, the king of the northern tribes, Pekah, he killed a lot of Jews, a lot of his own people, a lot of those in Judah. Ultimately, he was assassinated by one of his own people, Hoshea, the last king of the northern kingdom, who became a vassal king of Israel. Say, okay, that's the history part, but this, is, this, is, this still goes on, this kind of stuff, in some form. Maybe not with a sword, but people can assassinate your character. They could, there's other ways to do dirty things to people to get power. To do evil. And this Pika, as I mentioned, uh, he took captives um, in, during this invasion. In addition to the people that they, they killed, they had suffered great losses. And so this is why he was feared, because people were dying all over the place. In fact, uh, Syria even carried off, uh, off people. Pika, this king that's presently in power... Isaiah only names him one time. But he names the Damascus king three times. Because Isaiah has such contempt for him. He's not going to give his name. He's not going to, I'm not saying his name again. Once is enough for any lifetime. Anyway, Pekah uh, inflicting all of these casualties, Second Chronicles 28.6, because they had forsaken Yahweh. That's why God allowed Judah to suffer these losses. He even took some 200,000 women, sons, and daughters from Judah up to the northern kingdom. But Obed the prophet engaged him and said, you got to put them back. <laughs> and he does, uh, oddly enough. Anyway, here we are, all of this war going around. You know, put yourself in their place. Imagine if you had armies, you know, 100 miles from here, ready to converge on the place that you lived. I mean, all of the complications that would, interstate trucking would go away. Uh, you couldn't get refills for your ink pens and other such things. Yeah, of course, that would be minor. But anyway, uh, Assyria at this, so 734 B.C., in two years, the Assyrians will succeed in conquering Damascus. God is going to promise Ahaz that he's going to protect him nonetheless. Ahaz doesn't want to hear it. Most of the northern kingdom, with the exception of Samaria, the capital, which was a, a, just a natural fortification, the geography, 
the topography of the land was just a natural fortification, making it difficult to conquer. But they took all the other people away. They'll hold out for 12 years. And the prophet Isaiah is going to Ahaz, and he's going to counsel him. When we get to verse 4, he's going to say, don't worry about this. Verse 3 now, then Yahweh said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and Shirah Jashub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. So Isaiah is going to engage the king now. He's activated again, having not heard from him because the kingdom was pretty much, uh, had good kings. But he is going to engage King Ahaz at God's command and not through his own observations. In other words, Isaiah knows Ahaz is wicked, and he doesn't say, you know, i got to go talk to this, this guy. He doesn't do that. He doesn't make a move until God sends him. And when God sends him, he will be able to say, thus says the Lord, instead of thus says Isaiah. Ahaz, at this point, is inspecting the water supply. That's where the fuller's field was, where they did the laundry. And we read in 2 Chronicles 28 again about this character, Ahaz. So we know what, we, what Isaiah is dealing with. He burned incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his children in the fire, according to the abominations of the nations whom Yahweh had cast out before the children of Israel. So the historian is saying, this is the people, these are the people God cast out with Joshua in the, in, in, the, in, in the days of the judges that they were fighting in the early chapters of Judges. And yet this king tosses Yahweh away and embraces their gods. And he becomes a cold-blooded murderer of his own children for personal gain. This is part of his worship. So his gods, his little make-believe gods, which are demons, can give him what he wants, the power he wants. We have a saying, he sold his soul to the devil. Again, Second Chronicles gives us a little bit more insight on this character. Ahaz gathered the articles of the house of God, cut in pieces the articles of the house of God, shut up the doors of the house of Yahweh, and made for himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. And in every single city of Judah, he made high places to burn incense to other gods and provoked to anger Yahweh, the God of his fathers. So the indictment is very clear. There's nothing redeemable about this character. Well, he, he, as a king, he's trying to, to be the king and protect his city. Big deal. You know, you can be just a, 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 a child killer, as he is, and what, that's going to like, okay, well, that balances the books? Of course not. How could Isaiah stomach talking to such a man? Well, maybe you have had hopes of reaching some decadent individual that is just totally steeped in darkness uh, the same way. God is, Isaiah is trying to reach him. He's trying to bring light into the land. He's a prophet of God. God did not send Isaiah to stomach Ahaz. He sent Isaiah to deliver a message and is no different with us. I mean, uh, just you look at some of these politicians and you're almost nauseated. But if given the chance to preach the gospel to you, there's not a born-again Christian who wouldn't take that chance. That's what it means to love your enemies. If you can, if you can save their soul, by be used to save their soul, uh, you would, without hesitation. 
If you were to say, no, let them go to hell, well, then you probably aren't the Christian you think you are. Anyway, he tells the prophet, take your son with you. Shear Jashub, not a good name for a boy. <laughs> Isaiah's sons, and two of them are named. We'll get the other one in chapter 8, and I'll try to avoid mentioning it until we get there, because it's even harder than this one. Well, Isaiah's sons were given these prophet, prophetic names because they were walking sermons. They were messengers, just their names, so that when you looked at the kid, knowing his name, you got a sermon. Isaiah's name means Yahweh saves. That, that excludes everybody else. The name Michael means, who's like God? Are you kidding me? That's what the name means. There's nobody like God. That's the, it's a rhetorical. His son, Shear, his name means remnant shall return. Well, this is what God was saying in chapter 6 when the prophet said, I'll go take the message. And he said, oh, go, go tell these people, keep hearing and not respond to what they're hearing. And then he says in verse 13 of chapter 6, and yet a tenth will be in it and will return and be for consuming. And that's King Nebuchadnezzar will consume them, not all of them. Uh, but anyway, uh, he, this remnant shall return. Well, a remnant means survivors. They're not in the majority. They're mon the minority. Something catastrophic and not good. I don't know. If, can you have catastrophic blessings? I mean, uh, <laughs> I don't know. So anyway, you know, cat it's a catastrophe. It's a bad thing. And so in the message of the child's name is that, well, God's going to preserve his people. That should give some hope. The other son will have a name that means speed to the spoil, hasten to the plunder. It's a message of judgment. So one has these rays of hope and mercy, and the other name is judgment, because that's what the job called for. <clears throat> Verse 4, And say to him, Take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted, for these two stubs of smoking firebrands, of these smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezan and Syria and the son of Remalia. Well, Remaliah is closer to the pronunciation. Uh, this is, um, you know, we don't get to the prophet really comforting, giving us that New Testament comfort in our troubles until we get to the 40th chapter. Much of this is the background of what was happening in the life of the prophet, his ministry, what the people were doing. Uh, so, but, but, but within this still, we're getting the comfort of God. To this murderer of his own children, God sends the prophet to reach out to him, to try to bring him out of the darkness. And when he says, take heed and be quiet, it's not like we would, you know, take heed and shut up. That's not what is being said. He's saying, take heed and be calm. That's the message of the prophet to this monster. He's trying to reach him and it's going to take steps, but it's not going to succeed. Sometimes it does not here. For Judah's sake, for the sake of the people, Isaiah is sent to show evil Ahaz the way out of evil, how to get out of it. Now he says, for these two smoking firebrands, these, these two stubs of smoking firebrands, the two kings, the king of Syria and the king of the northern uh, part of Israel. Uh, as I mentioned, he's not going to mention Pekah again because he just, just finds him ab abhorrent. Uh, <laughs> 
Aren't there politicians, you, you, before you say their name, you, you pause, like, maybe I don't have to say it. Maybe there's another way. <laughs> you get to point to their district or something. Anyway, verse 5, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Ramalia have plotted evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves and set a king over them, the son of Tabel. Verse 7, thus says the Lord Yahweh, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. So the prophet is saying, yep, the, the, the Syria and, and the northern kingdom are in an alliance to kill you, overthrow the kingdom, and put Tabel in, in your place. And God is telling you, through me, it ain't going to happen. You would think Ahaz would say, thank you, Lord. He's hardening up. His heart is hardening up. And that's why the prophet was told, again, back in verse 6, he says, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes. Oh, don't, don't do that. It's sarcasm in that. It's a challenge to them. Because any sane person will say, what must I do to be saved? When, when Peter said to Simon Magnus, he says, you know, you're poisoned with bitterness and bound in iniquity. Simon said, pray the Lord, these things will happen to me. Well, that means God is giving a chance. The person can respond to that, uh, that invitation. It ain't going to happen here. But we're in verse 7, where he is told that it's not going to prevail the message is evil will not be exalted forever. But it gets a long run, that's for sure. And uh, uh, Isaiah knows the king fears being overthrown and, and the consequences. Verse 8, For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, that's their king. Within 65 years, Ephraim shall, will be broken, so that it will not be a people. Well, he's telling him it's going to take 65 years to finish the job in the northern kingdom. Although really, once, it, once Samaria falls, it's, the end, it's doomed. But he's giving him some detail here. So that other Jews can come along in other years and read this and say, look at that. The prophet Isaiah called this to the year. Maybe we should believe the prophet and not these false prophets that are circling around like buzzards. Uh, God is very deliberate, systematic. And so you come to your devotions and you read this, you miss all of this stuff because you get to the part and the virgin shall have a child. You go, that's the virgin birth. I understand that. Who needs the rest of the story? Well, they needed the rest of the story. So just a brief review. This prophecy that he's giving him right now happens in 734, years before Christ. Israel, right away, the northern kingdom, will start suffering losses because... Ahaz calls to Assyria and asks them for help. And Assyria says, sure, I'll come there. I'll loot the northern kingdom for you. Later on, I'll come and take yours too. <laughs> they don't tell him that, but that's what they're going to try to do. You know, when Hezekiah shows up, he's got to deal with that. And the angel of the Lord goes through their camp in the night and wipes them out. Anyway, Assyria, uh, Assyria goes right to work on both the northern kingdom and Syria. And in two years, they get Damascus, and that really ruins the alliance for the northern kingdom. Uh, Twelve years later, the northern kingdom, capital Syria, falls. I'm reviewing this. Uh, 
And then, 53 years later, after she loses her kingdom, her ethnic identity is gone. There are no one, there's no one left to be tied into the northern kingdom. Uh, the tribes, tribal survivors are in Judah now. So we pick this up in 2 Kings 17, where we're told, Then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, and I'll skip some of the names because I, I want to, that's why, and placed them in cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel, and they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in the cities. And so there's that tiglath Pileser, uh foreign policy of taking peoples from their land and swapping them with other peoples from other conquered lands. The Bible documents it for it, so we know what's happening. Um, Ezra 4, verse 2, gives us a little bit more insight on that if you have the desire to look further into it. Although I've pretty much satisfied it. <laughs> it's not tricky. It's just difficult for us because it's not our history. I guess it would be like giving a Civil War class to someone that lives in Thailand. I mean, it's just a whole, you've got to fill in so many blanks for them to, okay, now I get it. Anyway, verse 9, uh, nothing against the Thai people. It could be any foreign people. I'm sorry I did that. I don't want to get in the habit of apologizing for everything I say because it might be misunderstood. Sometimes, yeah, but not all the time. Uh, anyway, verse 9, the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And so that's why the northern kingdom is referred to as a, Ephraim was a dominant tribe in the north. The head of Samaria is Ramalia's son. Uh, that's reason. Oh, sorry, uh, Pika, which he doesn't want to name. If you will not believe, surely you will not be established. Well, we all understand what that means. Any Christian could read verse 9 and get to the bottom of it. If you will not believe, surely you will not be established. It's a fundamental doctrine. Come right out of Hebrews. Uh, you know, without faith, it is impossible to please God. I mean, how can you please God? You're saying, I don't believe you. I, mean, I don't believe you're there. I'm going to do it my way. So it's a clear meaning to this. And the point for Ahaz is the point of no return. He's telling him, if you do not believe me, if you are one of those that are hearing and not receiving, you're sealing your own doom. The prophet is very forthright about this whole thing. God in his long-suffering, showing Ahaz how to be saved. But instead of believing in Yahweh, he calls to the barbaric Assyrians. They were barbaric on the battlefield. They were quite civilized in, in their own cities. But um, again, they were monsters when it came to war. Verse 10, Moreover, Yahweh spoke again to Ahaz, saying, verse 11 now, Ask a sign for yourself from Yahweh your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test Yahweh. <laughs> Liar. Well, let's uh, kind of open this up a little bit. Isaiah is saying there is no other God. Whether you receive Yahweh as your God or not, he's your God. He ain't your father, but he's your God. He's no other creator. And so he gets that little one in, and he says, well, just ask. God is he's reaching out to you. He's going to work with your, your doubts. He's giving you another chance. Now, of course, God knew Ahaz was going to say no, but God also wanted it on record. Again, for other generations, for other people. 
You can't blame God. The people in hell will never have God did this to me. Well, it was your fault. Well, verse 12, Ahaz said, I will not seek nor will I test Yahweh. This is mock modesty. Oh, I'm not going to tempt the Lord thy God. Give me a fake old. He wasn't asked to test God. God is telling him right out, ask for a sign. Hezekiah will ask for a sign, and God will give it to him. And here his father, Ahaz, he refuses to permit God a chance because he doesn't want God to be real. Have you, have, I've met people like this. You say to them, look, just you know, go to the Bible, read it, and we'll talk. I don't want to read it. I don't want to hear about it. What about prophecy? I, got prophe- I don't want to hear about your prophecies. <laughs> can, you know, they just shut down. They're determined because they prefer their life without God, without the God of the Bible. Because, again, Ahaz has gods, but they're fake gods. Faith played no part in his religion and his cruel life or his politics. And anyway, he, 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 this is not, he doesn't mean this, I will not test the Lord. He's just trying to act like he's a religious Jewish person, and he is not. And you come across Christians like that, do you not? They act like you know, they're, they're Christians and really there's nothing Christ-like about them. Verse 13, then he said, hear now. O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? So Isaiah, Isaiah is enjoying this. He said, I don't like this guy anyway. So he's, he's saying, you know what? It's, a, it's, a little, it's, it's bad enough you trouble people, but now you want to mess with God. Here he is giving you an opportunity. You're playing these little games with him. Uh, and you're just, it's, you're just being a rebel. I'm going to give you a sign anyway. God speaking to the prophet. You're going to get the sign of the virgin birth. Because it's not all about you, Ahaz. As much of a troublesome person as you are, it's not all about you. You are being protected because of the Davidic line, not because there's something special about you. And it is good for us to remember when God uses us, it is because of God's great mercy. Take mercy away from the character of God and you're left with God, but no people, because it is, who can survive? Anyway, verse 14. <clears throat> In other words, mercy is one of the greatest attributes of God. Verse 14, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, we have Matthew 23. Matthew has already given commentary. And Matthew said, well, this is what this means. But that's not the whole story, and Matthew's not trying to say this is the whole story. He's properly applying it to the birth of Jesus Christ. But what about Isaiah? For this sign to work, there had to have been a fulfillment in the days of Ahaz. There had to be, and I'll get to why in a moment. Again, the New Testament remains clear uh, that there is a latter fulfillment, but that there is also an earlier fulfillment. There's two parts to this unusual sign. It has to be unusual. One to those in Isaiah's day, and one to those in the day of Mary and Joseph. The virgin birth as we know it. The Hebrew word here for virgin has a broad meaning. It means any young woman who is marriageable. She's of age. She can marry. That's what the word virgin means there. 
as it's used, it's used as maiden. Some of the translators would choose to. That's a, not, not, no problem with that. It just doesn't allows us to understand, okay, this has a little bit broader meaning. But when you get to the New Testament, the Greek locks it in. It's a virgin. And, and that is, uh, that's the Holy Spirit teaching us from the Old Testament into the New. Well, here's part one. I said there's two parts. This sign had an immediate significance to Ahaz and the people around, or else why even give it? I mean, it was 700 years, 700 years uh, from the virgin birth. Some virgin, some definite known virgin to Isaiah and Ahaz and some of the hearers, lived there, perhaps in the palace. She was of age to marry. She is not expected to marry. She conceives, she marries, conceives, and bears a son whose name would be Emmanuel, just as the prophet says it would be. And when this happens, again, it's out of the ordinary. People are going to say the prophet called this. Now, her, vir- her birth is not the virgin birth. She was a virgin entering into conception through natural, um, uh, through natural intercourse. The son, his name, God with us, would be a reminder that God was still with his people. Even though the Assyrians and all this stuff was happening, God is preaching to the nation, I am still with my people, in spite of the Assyrian threat, in spite of the Syrian and uh, northern kingdom threat. Uh, had this only to do with the virgin birth, then Ahaz would have missed the point. And not only that, because he died 700 years before Mary uh, in the virgin birth, so he would have said, like, well, what are you talking about? But the greater part, had there not been some realization at this time, what would they have said about Isaiah? You're a false prophet. You're coming here talking about this maiden having a child, naming him Emmanuel. We don't see anything like that. But they, they did see something like that. And the idea behind the whole thing is to say, a virgin is going to marry, have a child, name the child Emmanuel. By the time that child is weaned from nursing, the threat will be gone. And that will validate the prophet's prophecy. And, that, and that's why he stuck around to give us more prophecies. But had it failed, they would have been quick to stone Isaiah being a false prophet. So that's the first part of this. And this is not uncommon in Scripture. I'll, I'll give you another one in a minute. The second part is the full realization that a virgin would give birth. A woman who had not been with a man would conceive, and that is the virgin birth. And, of course, Jesus existed before his mother. He's, he's eternal, self-existent. He's always been having no birthday. Uh, as we understand, coming into existence. Um, anyway, having no, no human father is a big part of, of the virgin birth doctrine. He came down from heaven as the Son of God, God the Son with us. We understand that. But the easiest part about chapter 7 is connecting it to Matthew chapter 1. It says here, And bear a son... And shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, another symbolic name. But this time, it's not one of the prophet's children. It's someone else that Isaiah didn't feel he had to name because his audience knew it. And, and he was uh, probably because the Holy Spirit is saying, yeah, well, I'm going to make the center of attention from this verse, my son. And edit it out. Didn't have to have any distractions attached to it. 
Anyway, the symbolic name. God is in touch with people, and therefore people can be in touch with God. That's what it comes down to mean. And these people are sinners, and that's why it's such a big deal. When we come to the New Testament, we read about Emmanuel. God is with us. Why? Why would he be with us? We can't even stand with being with us. After a while, I need a break. And some in the various, various, uh, various levels of that. Sometimes I like a break until we get to heaven. <laughs> From some people and others, you know, you just a short break. But anyhow, a little levity there. Chuckle, chuckle. Back to this. I have to insert the chuckles because you guys are just helping out anyway. So the, the prophetic name fulfilled, literally fulfilled, centuries later by Jesus Messiah. Uh, part one, so just to review, part one, the people in Isaiah's day are assured that God will continue being with them and he will give a sign through this child. Part two, the people in Jesus' day are informed that the virgin uh, born child is divine and Messiah. Now this is critical because when the ultimate fulfillment of this sign in the days of Mary and Joseph, uh, pointing to God's relationship with sinners, by this miraculous birth of God in, in human form, we pick it up Matthew chapter 1, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. God is with us, in touch with us, and we can have contact with God. When the time came for Messiah to enter the human race, those familiar with this scripture verse, in a flash, they got it. They made the connection. It was right there in front of them, and they took hold of it. Joseph was the first. Joseph's response was one of implicit faith and obedience. He didn't ask for confirmation, even though he got two dreams. He didn't ask for an explanation. He accepted Isaiah's prophecy, which the angel recited to him. He accepted that this is the fulfillment the fullest application of the prophecy of Isaiah. Yeah, it had its fulfillment in, in Ahaz's days. That was a lesser fulfillment or the near fulfillment, a near prophecy. This is the far and the full fulfillment of Mary's, uh, of explaining Mary's pregnancy and the virgin birth. And so we pick it up again in Matthew to see Joseph, what he does. After the angel says, she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 24 now. Then Joseph, being aroused from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife. He acts instantly. He wakes up. He says, this is the Lord. In a flash, he got it. So God loses nothing in this. Nor does his prophet Isaiah. Nor do his people. And nor do we, because we have to have an objective approach to Scripture and not some superstitious, ooh, you know. We don't do, need to do that. Miracles, they don't need us to push them up hills. When the Bible says Jesus walked on water, you don't have to try to make that, you know, insist that it, we accept it, we understand it, we have no problem with it. When someone were to say to you, what's the first miracle of the Bible? In the beginning, God. That's the first contact with humanity. Uh, anyway, and even before humans were, but that's where he takes us. He gives us the origins of our beginnings. 
So many prophetic verses in Scripture have these multiple fulfillments, not just this one. There, there are quite a few. Daniel's prophecy regarding Antiochus Epiphanes is an example, Daniel 8 and Daniel 11. That devil, one of the greatest human devils in Scripture, that Syrian king's evil and his savagery against the Jews was a near fulfillment of Daniel 8 and Daniel 11. But there was one coming who he was only a type of that would exceed his evil, and we know him as the Antichrist. And so when you read Daniel 8 and 11, you say, boy, these things are historically fulfilled in Antiochus, but then it goes off the chart. There are other things about this king that is satisfied and from other prophecies in the Antichrist. So you have a near fulfillment, in Antiochus, or Antiochus, uh, and then you have the far fulfillment of Antichrist. So it's not like, ooh, oh, this is the one exception, Pastor, you're taking some liberties here. No, no I'm not. It's consistent. Other places, uh, uh, Elijah, the type of John the Baptist, a near and afar. So this is a, a great part of Bible prophecy. It involves weaving in and out of the immediate and the ultimate. And when you become knowledgeable of Scripture, you see it. So this fits perfectly. So anyway, I hope that does not confuse you. I hope that you're not, no, it's just a virgin birth. That's it. <laughs> if you are, that's okay. I'm not going to argue it. But you just have, you then leave Isaiah unguarded in his day. Because, you know, someone's going to say, well, where's this prophecy, prophet? Uh, anyway, verse 15 Curds and honey. So he's continuing the prophecy. He's not finished. He says, you know, this maiden's going to have a child. And you're going to name him Emmanuel. And he curds and honey, verse 15, he shall eat that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. So in other words, before God gets rid of the Assyrian threat, this child will be able to understand, hey, I don't like that, and I do like this. He likes honey, and I'm not too hot on the butter or the, or the cottage cheese or whatever, whatever the curds. It's some dairy uh, concoction that he will not be fond of, uh, <laughs> as it looks like. Verse 16, for before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good. Now, let me ask you, which would you choose, curds or honey? It would be a no-brainer for me. I'll take the honey. <laughs> anyway, uh, for the, before, verse 16, before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. Well, that's the northern kingdom and that's Syria. They're going, they, they won't be a problem to you. And so the prophet is trying to tell Ahaz, God has got this. In about two, three years, well, more like three years. And, and that's exactly, precisely how, how it unfolded, uh, you know, uh, Syria went right to work on Damascus and got rid of them in two years and went right to work on, on also right to work on the northern kingdom and they, the threat was gone. So just to review it, marriageable maiden, her conception once married, her term of pregnancy, her delivery, the weaning of the child, the Syria-Israel alliance against Judah passed. Ultimately, this prophecy is the virgin birth because the Bible tells us if we didn't have Matthew to come along and say, this is what Isaiah was really talking about, then we couldn't connect that. But we do have it. And that's why we love our scripture so much. As Peter said, we have the more sure word of prophecy.
You don't believe our logic. You don't believe our morals. How about our prophecies? What are you going to do with them? Because nobody's got them. Uh, one of the greatest time, or, or one of the greatest proofs of Bible prophecy, it's we have it on a map to scale Israel. I heard a comedian once say, I have a map of the United States to scale. One mile equals one mile. I thought it was hysterical. I, you should too. But I can understand. It's not my joke, so you're not going to laugh. Uh, anyway. <laughs> anyway, verse 17. So we've pretty much got through the heavy stuff. This is now going to, should be a breeze for us. Uh, and, and I don't think you should, I've explained it so well. <laughs> you shouldn't have any questions. Yeah. Uh, look, it takes a lot of study. It takes, there's one thing to read someone saying these things. It's another thing to go back and find it and validate it. So it does take a lot of work. Uh, and, and that's why we give you scripture verses, cross-references to say, well, this is how we arrived at these conclusions. Anyway, verse 17, Yahweh will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house days that have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. So the Assyrians are going to stab him in the back. It's going to backfire, his plan to trust the Assyrians. Isaiah is telling him right out uh, and, and giving him again the chance to believe. But he is determined to be an unbeliever. He's determined to ha- make his own gods and not submit to the true God. <coughs> Excuse me. In chapter 10, Isaiah will lay out what's going to happen to the Assyrians for us prophetically, and then that will happen. And if it didn't happen, they would have killed. He would not have. He would have lost his credibility. Anyway, uh, before Jerusalem was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, the single most tragic thing for the Jewish people was the split of the nation. They just that was just such a heavy blow, and that's why he says here in verse seventeen, days that have come not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. So he's saying trouble is coming and it's going to be on the same scale as when the nation was split. It's going to be that heart-wrenching. But once Nebuchadnezzar wiped out Jerusalem, that then became the next um, uh, benchmark for, for catastrophe. Verse 18, And it shall come to pass in that day that Yahweh will whistle for the fly, that is in the farthest part of the rivers of Egypt, and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. Verse 19, they will come, and all of them will rest in the desolate valleys, and in the clefts of the rocks, and on the thorns, and in all the pastures. And so the Egyptians are the fly, and Egypt known for her flies in those days. Uh, Ethiopia, the land of buzzing wings. Uh, The Assyrians is the bee, they were known as beekeepers. They, they were in the, the people of Assyria in those days. Anyway, these two nations are going to devastate Judah. They're going to be out, the, crawl, the land's going to be crawling with them as they just take whatever they can take because Judah became that bone of contention. They both, Egypt and Assyria, wanted to uh, take that. It's a bridge. It's actually a land bridge. Israel is between the east and the west. Anyway, verse 20, in the same day, the Lord will shave with a hired razor with those from beyond the river, with the king of Assyria, and the head and the hair of the legs 
and will also remove the beard. So he's giving word pictures. He's saying, you guys, you're going to be humiliated, shamed, and looted. You will be left with nothing. Verse 21, and it shall be in that day, and these things happened incidentally. It shall be in that day that a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. Now he's giving us detail that's far from us, but was near to the people who went through this. When they experience these things, they can say the prophet called it. Uh, and uh, the righteous would have been that remnant of faithful believers. Verse 22, so it shall be from the abundance of milk they gave that he will eat curds. For curds and honey, everyone will eat who is left in the land. Well, it's the land of milk and honey. I mean, it's a side note to that. But uh, the life has changed for these folks. Their diet has changed because the resources have been uh, just stripped from them and the workers. Uh, anyway, verse 23, it shall happen in that day that wherever there could be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver, it will be for briars and thorns. What a, how heartbreaking. Like, man, you know, I, I worked in a part of Brooklyn where they had these nice Victorian houses that were just shooting galleries for heroin addicts. They just would strip out the wood. I mean, just some of the wood was, woodwork was left. You said, well, where do you find carpenters that could do that anymore? Uh, I'm, I'm sure they must be out there, just not as many. And it was just heartbreaking. Like, man, what a, I would like that house, just not in this neighborhood. So anyway, that's going to be one of those, well, man, what a shame. Verse 24 with arrows and bows, men will come there because all the land will become briars and thorns. And to, verse 25 now, and to any hill which could be dug with a hoe, you will not go there for fear of briars and thorns, but it will become a range for oxen and a place for sheep to roam. So the foreign invasion would cause a change in the land from an agricultural base economy to a pastoral one, uh, where they're not growing, you know, wheat and barley and things like that, but they've, they've got cattle and the milk from the sheep and, I mean, the, the, the livestock. Anyway, the lack of men to care for the land. Thank you, Ahaz. And a cast of multitude of dark-minded governors and advocates of evil. Thank you for this history of failure. And it's the same throughout. I mean, thank you, Joseph Stalin, for what you did to your own people. Uh, Paul Pot, and all, you know, just on the list goes. And you say, where did these people come from? Well, Satan, they come out of hell. The God-haters brought darkness, and the lovers of God are to bring light. Let's pray. That wasn't so bad, right? <laughs> Our Father, oh Lord, thank you. Your word, so thorough. Sometimes it becomes a little difficult for us, even boring. But as we begin to peel back the layers, we find that there's a lot of spiritual detail here. Real people and real events and a real God sovereign over it all. We thank you for this. May we be encouraged to understand that you are indeed in control. You love us and we love you. And may you get us all home safely this evening, we ask you in Jesus' name, amen.